So uh, my name's Hugh, and I just want to extend my welcome if you're here for the first time, especially. It's great to have you with us. And uh, we're currently working through a series on Romans. We're up to chapter 9, as you just realized. And it's, um, it's, it's another pretty dense chapter, to be honest. I read this week, there's as many problems in Romans 9 as there are prickles on a hedgehog's back. And that certainly resonates as you read it, right? And um, I don't know if you recall, but um, I did um, begin the series on Romans, starting with Romans 1, which was like another like, really heavy passage. And we're here again, and I was thinking, you know, the thought occurred to me this week, Jess chooses, you know, who preaches on, on what. And I wanted I... Did I do something to upset her? Did I, you know, like, did I kick Billy by accident or something? I don't know. Is there, I don't know. No, I'm only joking. I don't know where Jess is. But um, I'm just really privileged, actually, to be able to work through this passage with you and to be able to serve you in this way. And I think it's going to be um, really exciting. So the good news is, although it does bring up some big topics, it's really easy to follow, okay? So our structure this morning is easy. Verses 1 to 5 are a little, like an introduction to the topic and not just to this chapter but the next three. And then um, Paul asks three really straightforward questions. They're straightforward to ask, but not to answer. The three questions are, is God faithful? Is he faithful to his promises? Second question, is God fair with the way that he deals with us? And the third question, is God at fault? And, And the big question we're exploring today is like, how do we get saved? As in, what's the mechanism and the relationship between God's choice and our free will, one of those really big topics that comes up every now and again. And I'm really pleased that we had a debate on this as a church a few months back because it's made my job a lot easier. And if you're here, maybe you're new to church, this could be your first time ever in church or your first time back for a long time, you wouldn't necessarily call yourself a Christian. I just want you to know that I don't believe that you're here by accident. I think that God has brought you here. He wants you to hear what's said today and what has already been said He's calling you. But I also believe that you've got a choice to make, a decision to make. And I would encourage you, part of making that decision is listening and engaging in what's said and uh, hopefully coming to a conclusion. But before we get into it, then let's pray. Jesus, I thank you so much for the power of your word. It's life-changing because it's you, Jesus. It's all about you. You're at the center of everything that's said. And I just pray that again this morning that you'd be at the center. I just pray that your name would be lifted up and glorified, Lord God. As we come to your word, Lord God, that you would just jump out of the page, Lord God, that you'd speak to our hearts, Lord God. And all of us are in different places, Lord God, but I just pray that this word would speak to us where we need to be spoken to. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, let's jump in. So it starts in verse 1 to 5, and it's not theology in a vacuum. Like, this is something that's deeply personal to Paul that he's about to talk about. You know, he underlines it by saying, you know, I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. It's like a double, like this is how important it is to me. And he says that he has great sorrow and unceasing anguish. It's a very, very strong emotion. And that's actually really nice to hear some kind of emotion from Paul at this point in time because it's been lots of just straight content. It's nice to hear from the man about how he feels. And it's in relation actually to what's happening in the state of Israel. He's saying, you know, Israel's had such privilege. They've had so many prophecies and stuff, but I'm so sad at where they are today. So few of them are part of the kingdom of God. I think as Graham so helpfully unpacked for us when he went through chapter 7, you know, he, he said that the Jewish community was a minority within the Christian community. The majority of Jews had not accepted Jesus But they did live with all these promises of who they would become as a nation, you know, that one day a leader would rise up from within them and and they'd become like the dominant leader. 
a nation in that area. And it's like, well, what's happened to all those promises? You know, now where are we? Where do we find ourselves? And so they're asking this question, which is question one that Paul brings up. You know, is God faithful? What, what happened to all this stuff that he said in the past? And where are we now? Because they don't quite seem to add up. And I think for, I'm going to stick to the text as much as possible, but I just think it's so encouraging to me that there's a question like this in the Bible because I think it's something that we all encounter at various times. You look at everything the Bible says, all the promises, all the good things, and then sometimes you compare it with your life and you just think they don't seem to add up. Like there's a, there's a mismatch, like is God faithful? Or you pray for stuff and you pray earnestly, but then you look at the answers you're getting back and it's like, well, is God faithful? It's a pertinent question to all of us, so let's see how Paul answers it. Well, he answers it by rooting their history in the very foundations of Israel. And he gives two examples. He looks at Abraham. Abraham was given a promise that his descendants would fill the whole earth. But what Paul said is, although that nation was going to be Israel, not all Israel is actually Israel. And let me, let me explain. He's, he, had, he had two kids, um, Isaac and Ishmael. And although Abraham was told that his descendants would fill the earth, both of those kids actually ended up becoming nations of their own. But the promise only went to one of them. It only went, went to Isaac. So Paul was saying, just because you're part of the family more broadly, the biological family, doesn't mean you inherit the promise. The, the, the promise was actually only for a portion of the family. So it's not just about the race, the, the family line that you follow. And then he gives another example because Isaac had two kids, Jacob and Esau. And there's, there's an argument, you know, with, um, between Isaac and his brother Ishmael. Ishmael didn't share the same mother as Isaac. And actually, Ishmael was only born because people didn't listen to God. He kind of was born from obedience. So you could understand why perhaps he was cut off from the promise. But Paul says, actually, Jacob and Esau, they share the same exact same parents. In fact, they were twins. They were born at the same time. But this is what Paul says. He said, before the twins were born who had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. So even though Esau was born first, Jacob was chosen by God to be the one that inherits the promise. And it's quite confronting language when Paul says, you know, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. It's really quite confronting. So he's saying not everyone who's born under the nation of Israel is actually part of the true Israel. Only some of them are. And Paul's saying this was the way that it has always been, and this is the way that it will always continue to be. Just because you're born a Jew doesn't mean you're part of the kingdom of God. And he'll go on to answer that question more over chapter 10 and 11 and explain, but he's kind of raised like a prickly question as he's talking about this, which is, well, if God has chosen one, not the other... Like, is God fair? Like, can God just do that? Why is he showing favor to some people and not the other? So Paul has to kind of jump off topic and answer that question that he's raised. The second question is, is God fair? Verses 14 to 18. And to be honest with you, like, Paul could have easily tempered his argument and just mentioned something about free will and then gone back to his, the main argument that he's trying to address. But instead of making it easier and easier for me, he's decided to make it even harder and really lean into those questions. So is God fair? Well, he starts in verses 15 and 16, and he quotes um, what God was saying to Moses. 
from Exodus. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and compassion on whom I have compassion. I have mercy on who I have mercy, want to have mercy, compassion on who I want to have compassion. I think to understand that statement, we need a little bit more information about two things. Mercy and anathemas. I'll start with anathemas because you're wondering, well, why on earth would we talk about that? An anathema is something or someone that you vehemently dislike. So synonyms, similar words, abhorrent, hateful, odious, repugnant, repellent, and offensive. It sounds like a list of your exes, right? <laughs> it's, not, it's not a great list. No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. But there is, there is real strength right, to these words, something you're vehemently opposed to. There's probably nothing in your life that you'd say, or very few things that you'd say you're vehemently opposed to. I've got two, yeah, mushrooms and slugs. I just, I, I just yeah, it, I just can't, I hate them both. And if I saw them together, like a slug on a mushroom or a mushroom on a slug, I think I would throw up, like, if I'm honest. And I say this to you for catering purposes, because people who invite you around, they say, is there anything that you don't eat? Well, now you know I don't eat mushrooms. I don't have to say slugs normally, but it's a big room and you never know, right? So I don't eat either of those things. Just, a, just while we're here, a brief aside on that. If, if you are the type of person who would invite me or perhaps my family for a meal and, and think of cooking as slugs, I would say I have low confidence that you and I could establish a meaningful friendship. That's, yeah. Okay, but why is it relevant? Well, it's a word, anathema, that appears a few times in the Old Testament, but in particular one time in, um, in, in the book of Joshua. God calls Joshua and says, hey, I want you to go into the land and you need, to, you need to kick out the people who are there. And he says, the people who are there, they've become an anathema to me, people I'm vehemently opposed to. The word is harem. And he uses it five times in Joshua chapter 6 when he instructs them to go. However, they do go, then, you know, Jericho comes down, they go into their next battle, but instead of destroying and getting rid of everything that's there, actually there's one guy, Achan, who keeps some of the spoils of war for himself. And so they lose their next battle and they wonder why. And God says, God, God, this is kind of uncovered, and God said, you, Israel, have become an anathema to me, a harem. You have become someone I'm vehemently opposed to because you didn't listen to what I said. And this is relevant because in chapter 9 of Romans, Paul uses that same word in, chapter, in verse 3. It, where he infers, he said, I wish that I could become a curse for you. We're basically saying, you, you are already cursed. You've become an anathema to God. If I could, I would become that on your behalf. And I think he's using that word intentionally to remind them that that's who they are to God. That's who they've come to. It's not just other people out there who, who are an anathema. Actually, it's the whole nation of Israel. It's Romans 3 again. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's the position that we find ourselves in. And so mercy, when God says he's going to have mercy, it can sound like almost like flippant. I have mercy on some people but not others. But it's not like that at all. Mercy can never be applied to something that deserves it. If an object or an individual is deserving of mercy, it's not mercy anymore. It's justice. They're getting what they deserved. You've earned the right to be treated favorably. The object of mercy can never be an individual. Sorry, the object of mercy will always be an individual who's... I, I should read my notes more closely. Or maybe I should skip my notes. If you've been good enough, you haven't earned mercy's justice. Mercy can only be given to those who are undeserving of it. So when God says he's going to be merciful, 
He's trying, to, he's, he's trying to say, so no one deserves to enter the kingdom of heaven, not one. So if I choose just one person from the whole human race, I've, I've still been better than anyone can ever complain about. He's saying it's a miracle that anyone gets in. So the fact I've chosen some people to show my mercy to is a point of huge generosity. So he's not being flippant with it at all. He's saying, look at, look at the state that you're in. The fact that I choose some of you in itself is a miracle. But then Paul goes on to make it even harder again. And he, uses, he makes it even more tricky. He's referenced Moses and having mercy and compassion, and that's good. But then he references Pharaoh. And he says, therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens who he wants to harden. So not just is he, is he good to those he wants to be good to, but he's saying, I take people's hearts and I harden them, suggesting that they then reject God. It's a really tricky statement. This word, hardening, has been, is used 14 times in Exodus between chapters 4 and 14. And that's where all the interactions between God and Moses and Pharaoh are. And at its root, it means to make someone spiritually insensitive, which almost sounds worse than hardening, right? How do we explain this? Well, has anyone ever been hitchhiking? Has anyone hitchhiked or picked up a hitchhiker? Just a few. I've only done it, not many actually, good, it's probably safe not to, but I've only done it once, I did it in Austria, and I was, um, I was going to a local tourist destination called Hitler's Bird's Nest, it's a, it's a home that is like one of his summer homes that he was given, and I was cycling there, and I was, this is too high, it's like 2k straight up, and I was like, no, nah. I put my bike in the bush, we're hitchhiking to the top, someone picked me up, it, it was great, I would give it a 4, 4.5 out of 10, by the way, I wouldn't visit, so... Just as an aside, it's not that great. I was deeply disappointed. But anyway, hitchhiking. Who's responsible for me reaching my destination? Maybe you could say the driver, but for me, I already chose where I wanted to go, and I'd already mapped out the path I was going there anyway. They just helped me on their journey. I think that this is what we, how we can think of God hardening Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh had already decided his destination. He'd already mapped out his path. God was just helping him on the way. But Pharaoh made that decision. One theologian puts it like this, a Christian thinker. He says, God's hardening is an act directed against human beings who are already in rebellion against God's righteous rule. God's hardening does not then cause them, cause spiritual insensitivity to God. It maintains people in the state of sin that characterizes them. So what he's saying is God doesn't change someone's mind. It's not like they were going great and God hardens them and all of a sudden they're going over here. They were already going that way and God just helps them on their journey. I find that a really helpful way of thinking about what happened between Pharaoh and Moses. But it still raises the next question, which is even harder. So, okay, God, if you chose Jacob and Esau before they were born, before they did anything right or wrong, before they could be considered responsible, like, am I, are you fair? Like, are you at fault? Like, if, am I responsible for my sin if you make decisions like this? That's the third question that Paul gets asked. And it's like, God, how can you blame me if you're pulling all the strings? And to be honest, Paul doesn't really answer the question yet. Like, he will get there, but to be honest, he actually answers the questioner. And Cindy said last night, and she requested that I quote her, she said, it's like... um, (laughs) So just just reference, this is just a reference... 
it, it's, it's like Paul's sick of being asked questions from little kids. He's just like, oh, guys, come on. Like, who are you to talk back to God? He's no longer going to answer the question because he's sick of questions. He's going to refer back to the questioner. It's like you're asking if God's at fault here. You're asking you not to blame. It's like, let's, let's be honest. Just remember who you are and who he is. You have no right to talk back to God. You are like a lump of clay, and he's the creator. And it's not like you, you know, he formed you, and then you say, oh, you made me into a cup, but I wanted to be a plate. It's like you don't get the choice, okay? He's God. And I think um, there's an interesting call in that for us to reflect on humility and our position to God. But he doesn't answer the question directly, but I think it's still a really important question. And here is the heart. Like, what's the relationship between God's choice and our free will? Like, if, if, if you are deciding things in advance, God, how does that work out? Like, how am I responsible? Well, I think it, he'll unpack that in chapters 10 and 11, but he gives us like a glimpse into it in the last few verses, verses 30 to 33. And I'm skipping some in between, but that's just for time's sake. It's not like Paul says anything um, different in those verses. He just gives further light. But jumping to the end, he basically begins to talk about the Jewish people and the Gentile people. And he says that Gentile people are choosing to follow Christ, like the emphasis on them, and they're making their own decision to follow him. The Jewish people, they're choosing to reject Christ. They wanted righteousness with God, and they chose, historically, or they thought that that would occur through the law. They're still trying to approach God through the law. So Jesus is actually like a stumbling stone for them. They're actually tripping up over him again and again and again. Rather than leaning into God's grace, they're trying to earn their way into heaven. And it's not the right way. So Paul's putting the responsibility. He's saying that Gentile people are choosing to follow God. That's their decision. Jewish people are choosing still to follow the law en masse. It deeply saddens Paul, but just that's the state of affairs. But it's their decision. So we still have to answer the question, well, like, how are we saved? What's the relationship between God's choice and our free will? I don't know if this is, well, this has never happened to you. I'm sure this has never happened to you. It's happened to me. I don't wear suits very often. It's normally for weddings. And weddings, they're normally like a, like a year or something between one and the other. It's no, it never happened to you. It happens to me where I come to put the suit on that I haven't worn for a year and it doesn't fit as well as it did last year. Do you know what? Like, it's not the suit has shrunk. I, I would like that to be the case, but it's not. I've changed. I've probably grown, particularly in the waist region. So you start to... And then it's... Oh, this isn't... I don't know if this is going to work. You know, there's, there's some excess that's now present, that wasn't there before. It means it just doesn't all fit. I say that because sometimes we approach the Bible and we approach it with a theological framework in mind. It's like, I think this, I'm going to force it into this passage. But what happens often when we do that is it doesn't quite fit. You know, you, you, initially it slots in, but then all of a sudden there's like some excess. Like these verses actually don't match up here I would call them theological muffin tops. Yeah, if we're picking up this illustration. It just doesn't, it just doesn't all fit in comfortably. And, and what I've tried to do here is rather than preaching a theme, although it, it comes up, is just try and say, what does the scripture say? Just let it, we just let it breathe and it says what it needs to and then we worry about it, what the implications for it later. And I think this passage teaches two really clear things. 
I think it teaches that um, God decides. I think the idea of predestination was mentioned in chapter 8, and I think it's mentioned really clearly here in chapter 9. I don't think you can say, I don't believe in predestination or I don't believe in election. You know, these aren't like extra-biblical words like um, trinity or penal substitution or propitiation, like people, long words that people use to explain things in the Bible. It's actually just here. So you kind of just have to believe it, that God calls us, he chooses, it's here, it's really plain. But I also think, at the same time, it really clearly teaches that we have a choice, we make a choice, and it's a real choice. Like Even it references Esau, but if you read the story of Esau, he made a decision to sell his own birthright to his brother. It was his decision. It's not like God made me do it. It's like, no, he did it. He made the mistake. He's responsible. Clearly, towards the end of the verse here, Gentiles are responsible for their decision. Jews are responsible for their decision. Our issue is that these ideas are mutually exclusive. God's choice and our free will... I think they're both present, but logically it doesn't make sense. But I don't think the question is, well, does one exist and not the other? I think they both exist biblically, and we just have to deal with that. The question is, how do they interact with each other? The truth is, I don't know. And anyone who says they absolutely do know with certainty, I don't think think they do. I just think... There's a mystery in this that will not be solved. Someone said to me this week, we need more AFL. I was like, oh, okay. And they said, they said no, awaiting further light. As in, the whole revelation's not here. There's something about, you know, we are the clay and he is the potter, that there's a humility in that that we need to carry through into our theology. And think, no one's ever going to be able to fully systematize, understand God because he's outside of our human logic. I think that should push us to deepen our understanding and grow it wherever we can. But I also think we need to do that with a position of humility. That means actually we're willing to listen to other people, hear other perspectives, knowing that we don't know it all. We haven't got it all together but we can grow together and learn together. And I love the fact that we did a study on this um, a month ago. I love the fact that we're all reading through it together because ultimately you're accountable for your own biblical knowledge and you've got to press into it. And it's not like the person from stage can come tell you, this is what you need to believe. This is not what you need to believe. Actually, you need to work it out in some ways for yourself. And I think there's just a sense here we're not going to understand God fully. We have to accept that. And if you like, glory in that, because he's much, much bigger than us. But it doesn't mean that this is irrelevant. I take those two truths and I apply them to myself. I'm so grateful that God chose me. I'm so grateful that he selected me, that he opened my eyes. And it's something I can praise God for, especially when I screw up, because it just reminds me I'm not here because of what I did or my own performances. His grace has opened my eyes to his glory, and I'm so thankful for that. At the same time, I made a decision to follow Christ. I know I did, and I think he even responded to my decision. And I want to keep making a decision that says I'm going to follow Christ again and again and again. I want to make the same decision tomorrow and the day after. I also believe there's people I interact with in my life who don't know Jesus. Some of them have been called by God Therefore, I can go out there with faith, and especially as a preacher, knowing, hey, no matter what I say, if God's calling someone, that's it, it's going to happen. 
we, the people that we interacted, he's put us in our jobs, in our positions, in our families, with people who don't know him because he's calling them to him. He's chosen. But at the same time, it all, I also conversely think any single person I meet can, be, can become a Christian. They all can, can be convinced that this is the truth. They can do that through the way I live my life, through the way I love them and care for them, through the words that I say. It's like, it's like a win-win in my mind. I know some of people are called, and I know anyone can become a Christian, so let's just go. So although I think it's difficult to understand, I think there's huge potential for how we apply it. If we could have the, the, the band up. I don't have a, um, like an incredible... like super exciting conclusion for you, like apply this into your lives. I just think sometimes it's just too good to go through scripture and say, this is what it says and this is what it means and we're just learning and growing together. But I would say, if there's one thing that we can be grateful for, it's just God's mercy. It comes through again and again and again. He has been so good to us. He has been so kind to us. The fact that any of us get the opportunity or the chance to be in relationship with him is an absolute miracle. And it only happened through one way. If, if you asked for justice and we got justice, it would be terrifying. But instead, Jesus came and he chose mercy over justice. He chose to take on the full wrath of God on himself so that anyone who believes in him can be saved. And I just think if there's any truth that we can just meditate on as we close, it's that. Jesus is incredible. He's made a way for us all to know him. And we've all got a decision to make in that space. So, Joe, I hand over to you. Let me, let me pray first. God, I thank you for the power of your word and I thank you for the power of community. And we as a community want to be people who um, know your word, live by your word, who are shaped by your word and transformed through it. And we just pray, Lord God, that we just take these scriptures, the truth about you, understand there's mystery and no human mind can ever comprehend you. Lord God, but we do want to pursue you with our whole hearts, Lord God. So help us to do that, Lord God, to keep drawing us closer and closer to you in Jesus' name.